Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. Good morning, I'm Nathan Hager. And I'm Karen Moscow. Here are the stories we're following today. We begin with the passing of a man who defined foreign policy in the 1970s and worked to shape it for decades after. Henry Kissinger has died. Bloomberg political contributor Rick Davis says Kissinger's influence was unmatched. It's quite a uh, career that lasted my entire life. I would say that we've not seen much of the likes of him. Uh, Somebody who has never been elected to office, but wielded as much power as any powerful president or prime minister in the world. Kissinger was credited with opening the door to China and achieving detente with the Soviet Union, but he courted controversy for supporting massive bombing campaigns in Vietnam and Cambodia. Bloomberg's Ian Marlowe says Kissinger leaves a complicated legacy around the world in Asia, in the Middle East, could be a polarizing figure. But I think that was in part because he embodied that sort of American power. He was one of the people at the center of of American power. And over a long period of time, when the U.S. role in the world was also changing, and it is to some extent an end of an era. And that era continued right to the end. This past July, in fact, Henry Kissinger met with Chinese President Xi Jinping in Beijing to discuss U.S.-China relations. Henry Kissinger died yesterday at his home in Connecticut. He was 100 years old. And Nathan, we turn now to breaking developments in the Middle East. Israel and Hamas have agreed to extend their truce for at least another day. The two sides announced the extension just minutes before their ceasefire was due to end. Ahead of the announcement, Secretary of State Antony Blinken explained what he hopes to achieve during his visit to the region. We'll discuss with Israel how it can achieve its objective of ensuring that the terrorist attacks of October 7th never happen again, while sustaining an increasing humanitarian assistance and minimizing further suffering and casualties among Palestinian civilians. And Secretary of State Blinken is currently in Tel Aviv for his third visit since the attacks. He will also visit the West Bank. The visit comes as more captives were exchanged yesterday evening with 10 hostages released by Hamas in exchange for 30 Palestinians held by Israel. And back here in the U.S., Karen, House Speaker Mike Johnson says he has real reservations about expelling Congressman George Santos. We get that story from Bloomberg's Ed Baxter. The resolution says the vote needs to happen today, but Speaker Johnson says for him, there are some real problems here. I personally have real reservations about doing this. I'm I'm concerned about a precedent that may be set for that. Um, So everybody's working through that, and we'll see how they vote. Santos will be the first expulsion without a conviction on charges. Johnson at one point yesterday said the vote would come Friday, but the resolution does say today. So we'll see how it works out. Ed Baxter, Bloomberg Radio. All right, Ed, thanks. Well, Elon Musk is talking about the future of X following an advertising boycott. And we get the latest from Bloomberg's John Tucker. John. What the boycott is going to do, Musk says, is kill the company. And who does he blame? Well, not himself, 
But the advertisers, he heralded an expletive their way, saying they can go bleep themselves. Those advertisers include Walt Disney and Apple. Earlier this month, Musk agreed with a post that said Jewish people hold a dialectical hatred of white people. Well, that message has since drawn widespread criticism. On stage at the New York Times Dealbook Conference, Musk did say the post was the worst and dumbest he's ever done. Musk urged people to judge him by his actions rather than his words. He brought up his electric car company, Tesla, saying he's done more for the environment than any human. I'm John Tucker, Bloomberg Radio. All right, John, thank you. Now let's take a look at some stocks on the move this morning. Shares of Salesforce are up nearly 9%. The San Francisco-based software company gave a profit forecast for the current quarter that topped analyst estimates. Salesforce is benefiting from its cost-cutting program. Meanwhile, Nathan Snowflake is up about 8.5%. The company gave a product sales outlook for the current quarter that beat expectations. That's fueling hope that revenue is stabilized after the software maker experienced a dramatic slowdown in growth during the past year. Turning to the economy, differing views on inflation from two Federal Reserve regional bank presidents. Atlanta Fed President Rafael Bostic says he's growing increasingly confident that inflation is firmly on a downward path. On the other hand, Richmond Fed Chief Thomas Barkin tells CNBC, he's not yet convinced. There's no precision uh, that anyone can point to at exactly what is the level of rates that exactly handles inflation in exactly the way you want to handle it. And so you're constantly trying to adjust on the fly. Both Thomas Barkin and Raphael Bostic will be voting members of the FOMC next year. Well, in corporate news, Nathan, online job search company Indeed is canceling the monthly mental health days it introduced during the pandemic. And we get this story from Bloomberg's Charlie Pellet. It joins a growing group of firms pairing back benefits they rushed to provide during the COVID-19 crisis. Indeed initiated so-called U-Days in June of 2020, giving all employees the same day off each month at a time when exhausted staff were taking fewer vacation days because of travel restrictions. Three years later, employees are once again booking time off at a similar rate to before the pandemic. So the company said, quote, as a result, we have agreed that the global need for you days has passed. In New York, Charlie Pellet, Bloomberg Radio. And Charlie, we just got inflation data from the Eurozone. It cooled more than expected. Consumer prices rose 2.4 percent from a year ago in November. That was down from 2.9 percent the previous month and less than all estimates of economy surveyed by Bloomberg. Nathan, thanks. It's time now for a look at some of the other stories making news around the world. For that, we're joined by Bloomberg's Amy Morris. Amy, good morning. Good morning, Karen. Ultra-conservatives in the House of Representatives have now softened their demands for deep spending cuts to domestic programs, heightening the odds that two parties can reach a spending agreement and avert a partial government shutdown in January. The shift came after the House failed to pass bills at the lower spending levels demanded by the House Freedom Caucus. They've been pushing for $120 billion in cuts. This softer stance gives House Speaker Johnson more room to negotiate a bipartisan spending bill as senators from both parties want to add $14 billion in spending by designating it an emergency, not subject to that cap. As lawmakers consider an aid package to Israel, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is issuing a warning. Bloomberg's Nancy Lyons has that part of the story. Senator Schumer, who is the highest ranking Jewish elected official in the country, spent 45 minutes on the Senate floor decrying the rise in anti-Semitism at a level not seen in decades. The normalization and exacerbation of this rise in hate 
is the danger many Jewish people fear most. The Anti-Defamation League says anti-Semitic incidents have nearly quadrupled since the onset of the Israel-Hamas war. Schumer says it's time for a clear-throated denouncement of the hate. In Washington, Nancy Lyons, Bloomberg Radio. And that new poll shows the number of college students experiencing or witnessing anti-Semitism is also up this academic year. That poll by the Jewish-led Anti-Defamation League and Hillel International found that nearly three in four Jewish students and 44 percent of non-Jewish students saw or experienced anti-Jewish ideas since the start of the 23-24 school year. A very special holiday display now at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. The White House South Lawn has an ice skating rink to celebrate the holidays. First Lady Jill Biden unveiled the rink with skating performances from figure skaters and Peanuts characters. What's more magical and wonderful and joyful than, you know, being on an ice rink in the South Lawn of the White House? Who knew, right? Now, military families, first responders, and other special invited guests can enjoy the White House skating rink in December. It will not be open to the public. Global News 24 hours a day and whenever you want it with Bloomberg News Now. I'm Amy Morris, and this is Bloomberg, Karen. All right, Amy, thank you. Well, we bring you news throughout the day right here on Bloomberg Radio, but now you can get the latest news on demand whenever you want it. Subscribe to Bloomberg News Now to get the latest headlines at the click of a button. Get informed on your your schedule. You can listen and subscribe to Bloomberg News Now on the Bloomberg Business app, Bloomberg.com, plus Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Time now for the Bloomberg Sports Update. Here's John Stashauer. John. Karen, upset in college basketball. They stormed the court in Fayetteville after Arkansas knocked off seventh-ranked Duke 80-75. North Carolina, ranked 17th, put up 61 points in the first half in Chapel Hill and beat 10th-ranked Tennessee 192. So they split 14 games in the ACC-SEC Challenge over the previous two nights. They both won seven times. couple of bad teams in the NBA's Eastern Conference. The Pistons, the Wizards, they played the other night. Washington won, but the Wizards lost in Orlando 139-120. to The Magic 13-5 and on the year. The Wizards are 3-15. and The Pistons are 2-17. and They've lost 15 games in a row. Blown out at home. Lakers won 133-107. to D'Angelo Russell scored 35. Seahawks and Cowboys kicking off Week 13 tonight in Dallas. They both played last Thursday. Cowboys won easily, and Seattle lost to the 49ers. These two teams are in second place in the NFC East and West. The teams that are in first place in those divisions, the Eagles and 49ers, and they play Sunday. That's the big game of Week 13. It's a rematch of last year's NFC Championship. Joe Flacco now with the Cleveland Browns. They brought him in when Deshaun Watson went down. He's gone from third-string QB to second, and Dorian Thompson-Robinson is in concussion protocol, so Flacco may start Sunday against the Rams. Patriots not saying anything official as usual for them, but it sounds like Mac Jones goes to the bench. Bailey Zappi expected to start on Sunday. John Stash, our Bloomberg Sports. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. 
From coast to coast, from New York to San Francisco, Boston to Washington, D.C., nationwide on Sirius XM, the Bloomberg Business App, and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak. Good morning. I'm Nathan Hager. We want to reflect more on the life and legacy of Henry Kissinger, who died yesterday at his home in Connecticut at the age of 100. Kissinger was born in 1923 in the German state of Bavaria. He moved to the U.S. in 1938 to escape Nazi persecution. He was the son of a Jewish schoolteacher. At age 19, while a student at the City College of New York, Kissinger was drafted into the Army in the U.S., serving as an interpreter during World War II. And after the war, he helped round up Gestapo officers as a member of the 970th Counterintelligence Corps. Kissinger spoke earlier this year with uh, Bloomberg's editor-in-chief, John Micklethwaite, and said he saw the firsthand impact of authoritarianism and totalitarianism in his youth. It was an experience which is so elemental that it becomes part of you. Kissinger brought that experience back with him to the United States. He resumed his studies at Harvard University. His doctoral dissertation there focused on balances of power in 19th century Europe. As a tenured professor at Harvard, Kissinger honed the conservative realpolitik worldview that would dominate his thinking on foreign policy for more than a half century. Kissinger also cultivated relationships with policymakers in Washington. That led him to the White House in 1960 as National Security Advisor to President Richard Nixon. Kissinger's secret trips to China in 1971 paved the way for arguably the greatest foreign policy achievement of the Nixon presidency, his own visit the following year. Knowing of President Nixon's expressed desire to visit the People's Republic of China, Premier Zhou Enlai, on behalf of the government of the People's Republic of China, has extended an invitation to President Nixon to visit China. The opening of China and an anti-ballistic missile treaty hammered out with the Soviet Union achieved what would become known as Kissinger's triangular diplomacy. But his penchant for secrecy would lead to controversy. Kissinger was the first person to serve as both National Security Advisor and Secretary of State at the same time. That allowed Nixon to run foreign policy more or less directly from the White House. The president summed up his attitude in a taped conversation with Kissinger about the Christmas Day bombing in Vietnam in 1972. Kissinger fed into that paranoia about enemies in the press by ordering wiretaps of reporters and White House aides looking for leaks. That expanded use of surveillance led to Nixon's resignation under the weight of Watergate. But the weight of one major foreign policy decision would cloud Kissinger's legacy for the rest of his long life, the secret war in Cambodia. Kissinger orchestrated the operation that dropped more than 100,000 tons of bombs on North Vietnamese positions in the country. It helped lead to the rise of a genocidal Khmer Rouge regime after the war. But Kissinger would never stop defending his conduct in Vietnam, even against critics who labeled him a war criminal. What's a better way at any one point? We didn't think so. I still don't think so, but I'm open to that argument, but 
but what is meant by better. That pragmatic approach to the world as it is, rather than how policymakers might like it to be, would inform Kissinger's view long after he left public office and sought to wield influence as a private citizen. At the age of 88, Kissinger wrote the book On China, about the country he helped to bring back to the world stage. In a 2020 interview at the Bloomberg New Economy Forum, Kissinger warned of the risks of confrontation between the world's two biggest economies. Unless there is some basis for some cooperative action, the world will slide into a catastrophe comparable to World War One. And Henry Kissinger worked to head off that catastrophe after reaching his 100th birthday. This year, when President Biden sent cabinet secretaries to Beijing to try to stabilize relations, the one U.S. diplomat that Chinese President Xi Jinping met face to face this summer was the man who he called an old friend to China, former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. And for more, we are joined from Singapore by Bloomberg News Managing Editor Derek Wallbank. A mixed legacy, Derek, but an undeniable legacy at the same time. I think that's exactly right, Nathan. I, I, th- I think you did a brilliant job uh, setting this up. And there, when when we're talking about the reaction, especially out here, I think the the polarity of feedback has been striking today. Um, you know, Kissinger was a sort of person that, in some corners of the world, it was a lionized statesman, and in some other. Uh, corners in the world, uh, they considered him uh, an absolute scoundrel, um, and 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 there's not really a giant uh, mix of those uh, right now. Certainly through Asia hours, I mean, you're you're talking about somebody who uh, in Singapore was uh, was somebody that that foreign ministers would would make pilgrimage to his apartment in New York City every time that there was a UN General Assembly meeting. China, you saw that you, you mentioned the reaction from uh, Xi Jinping. He's, uh, he, Kissinger was described as an old friend of the Chinese people. There's a, there a mournful uh, reaction from, from China. At the same time, uh, this is somebody who throughout, throughout parts of Southeast Asia, uh, particularly Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, etc., um, you know, Indonesia, parts of Timor-Leste, it, it, like it, is not held in anywhere the same sort of thing. It's a very polarizing person, but certainly somebody who had, I think uh, it is unanimous to say, a titanic effect on the world in which he lived. No doubt. And to put it into the context of where U.S.-China relations stand now, I think it's gotten a little bit better uh, since the low that we saw after the alleged spy balloon incident uh, back in February. Uh, But talk a little bit more about the impact that Henry Kissinger tried to wield even up to the end uh, as President Biden was trying to put U.S.-China relations sort of back on the rails. I think one of the most notable things sitting here as we as we closely have tracked the decline in relationships between the two superpowers is how Henry Kissinger always seemed to be the one American who could get a meeting with anyone he wanted in China. I mean, anybody he wanted. Mm-hmm. The uh, I saw in Chinese state media uh, uh, today uh, retrospectives of here was Henry Kissinger visiting it this year, and then two years later, and then three years later, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, down the line. 
He met with anybody he wanted. He met any time he wanted. And senior, senior Chinese folks would, would go to him, uh, would would want to talk to him to get a sense of where th- things were in the United States, and vice versa. You know, he was a counselor to presidents of his party or not, people who agreed with him or not. He was seen as this respected voice that when he was in the room, people felt like they needed to listen to on both sides of this relationship, because as I say, he was so respected um, uh, in China. And, and these days, you, you find somebody uh, who, who is, you know, who is American, who has deep ties to the American state, who, who is that respected in China. It's, it's a very, very small list, right? And Henry Kissinger might have been right at the top of that list. Well, we think about the passing of a former secretary of state who saw the world as it is. We have a current secretary of state, Antony Blinken, who is back in a part of the world that is as restive as anywhere else uh, in the Middle East. Let's talk a little bit about the latest that's happening in the conflict between Israel and Hamas and the influence that secretary of state Blinken is trying to have as this tenuous ceasefire continues. Yeah, and the thing that I think everybody's waiting for is is to see how long this ceasefire will go. It was supposed to uh, expire at 7 a.m. local time Thursday. It got extended for another day. I mean, the announcement here just minutes before that ceasefire was due to end, there had been reports of of small violations here and there. Of things we have seen a steady drip drip of of hostage releases um, but it's a very very tenuous i don't even want to use the p the word peace it's a very it's a very tenuous pause let's go with pause because a pause implies that the play button is back it, it is also on the table that that a restart could be coming soon. Uh, so I think that's the question. How much progress are we getting here? You do see the United States uh, trying to play in here. I think, I think the Biden administration is politically uh, finding itself in a, in, a, in a tough spot. They are trying to uh, have some guardrails that they're trying to communicate to the Israelis. At the same time, um, you know, the, the U.S. is permissioning, uh, if, if I can use that word, they're, they're certainly, um, you know, they're, they're, they're certainly Israel's biggest friend on the world stage, right? So, so that's a little bit of a difficult position that the Biden administration is trying to tread a little bit carefully, but they are trying to influence uh, what's, what's going on in that, uh, in that part of the world, and they have a lot of, of place to play. At the same time, you see countries like Egypt, countries like Qatar, uh, trying to, you know, trying to influence, maybe they might be more sympathetic, uh, uh, to other sides than, than the U S administration might be, but all sort of trying to find and feel a way out of this, uh, so that it doesn't conflagrate more all the while. Also, it should be said, trying to keep, uh, nation states that are currently mostly on the side on the side, and I'm thinking here of of, of countries like Iran, uh, mm-hmm. to prevent this from escalating into something even more than it is right now. It's certainly a touch and go uh, sort of thing uh, right now, and I, and I do, as I say, I think I think it carries some political risk. I mean, look, Nathan, we're 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 less than 12 months out from the U.S. presidential election, yeah. and a lot of the people who who are protesting in the streets uh, in the United States are people who you would 
find in a normal Democratic coalition who are deeply upset with the president right now and vowing not to vote for him in any circumstance. Right. That's a part. Uh, that's a group of people he needs to come out for him next year. And so it's a very, very delicate balance. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Today, your morning brief on the stories making news from Wall Street to Washington and beyond. Look for us on your podcast feed at 6 a.m. Eastern each morning on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also listen live each morning starting at 5 a.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg 1130 in New York, Bloomberg 991 in Washington, Bloomberg 1061 in Boston, and Bloomberg 960 in San Francisco. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa devices. Just say Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Plus, listen coast to coast on the Bloomberg Business app, Sirius XM, the iHeartRadio app, and on Bloomberg.com. I'm Nathan Hager. And I'm Karen Moscow. Join us again tomorrow morning for all the news you need to start your day right here on Bloomberg Daybreak. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.